encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16, this will serve as something as the bridge between the study and the life of David and our McKnight lectures, which start next Sunday. Psalm 16 contains a superscription, a miktam of David. Miktam, M-I-K-T-A-M. First time we find that in the Bible is here. We also find it Psalm 56 through 60. And what's fascinating is when you look at those Psalms, they all start with a prayer. They all quickly, you realize there's trouble behind the scenes, and yet they are filled with a joyful confidence. The David, in God's kindness, has been brought into trouble, but also been brought through the trouble to be assured he has security in, and joy, even though there's trouble around him. Prayer in the life of the study of David. You would not only know about David, but you would know David's God. You would know the God who meets David in all the ups and all the downs. And through all of that, provides blessing and security which the world cannot offer. We may God in his kindness reveal that to us powerfully this morning in Psalm 16. Be reminded the Bible is the inspired and infallible word of God. It's our only rule of faith and practice. Let's hear Psalm 16. A mictim of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings uh, of blood I will pour out, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, he instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray you be gracious. You've done such a great work in David's heart all the days of his life. We pray that you would do the great work in ours as well. Give us grace that we would also come to the same conviction. I shall not be shaken. And may that conviction rest solely on your faithfulness to your covenant people. We pray in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Imagine a friend calls you to lunch this week and says, I need your help. Life is a mess, one trouble after another. And here, they just list the litany of issues they have before them. And they say to you, I find no or little joy in Jesus Christ. I find no security, I find no comfort, I find no safety in him. What would you say? How would you respond? Where would you start? 
or never mind the friend coming to ask you. Maybe, maybe that's where you are. John, my life is just one trouble after another, a, a sad story that doesn't seem to end. I want to change the chapter of the book, but I, I'm stuck in the same page over and over again. It's rut that I cannot get my life out of. How, how is life to change? Where's joy found? Where's security? Where's safety? Where can I run? What's wonderful, glorious about Psalm 16 is that David has found that spot. David's found a certain peace and security, a, a respite in David's life that doesn't make sense given all his circumstances. Be reminded of what we've seen even over the last few months in the life of David. A, a young man set apart at about age 15 to be the king. He would have to, in that same year, fight the giant Goliath and kill him. He would be a man who would uh, become a, an army leader, leading armies to battle, and yet the reward of his great victories that Saul, the king, would hate him and want to kill him. He had to flee for his life over and over again. A man who becomes king in Hebron and then king uh, in Jerusalem, and yet within two years, his mighty fall happens. He sees Bathsheba, commits adultery, then kills her husband, Takes about nine months before Nathan the prophet comes to confront his sins. So there nine months of unrepentant sin. David lived with that guilt over his head until he was told, you're the man. And God in his kindness would forgive him. And yet because he was the king, there's consequences that would fall upon him. The sword would not depart from your house. David lived with the reality that the rest of my days, there would be a limp, as it were, in his life hardship that would come as a result of his moral failure as the king before God's people. And sure enough, he'd have a son who wouldn't follow in the steps of his, of his desire to lead his people, but would follow all the pride and greed, long to kill David, long to overthrow him. David had a hard life. In fact, you follow the story, you would say, it's filled with war and strife, challenges and hardship, it's filled with pain. But David says in verse 6, my, my lines have fallen in pleasant places. He'll say in verse 8, I shall not be shaken. And you, and you have to scratch your head for a moment and say, how does a man get to that place? How does a man or a woman realize all the pain that's around them, which he acknowledges in verse 1, preserve me, O God. He's not denying the trouble that's around him. <clears throat> but somehow, he's in a place where, despite all that he sees with his eyes, there's something else that he knows. He knows by faith. It's not David. It's not knowing his own heart. It's not knowing his circumstances. It's knowing the God he cries out to in Psalm 1. The world longs for a certain hope and confidence that the world itself can't offer. And yet here in Psalm 16, David's found it. My prayer for you this morning as we walk through the text is not just to, to, uh, to acknowledge David got there, but to say, how did David get there? That you and I might be the very kinds of men and women and young people whose lives are not dictated by our circumstances, but instead by the nature of our God. This fixed, unchangeable, gracious, powerful God whose life makes all the difference in our lives. 
And so follow me as we work through Psalm 16. It's clearly from verse one, we're in the midst of trouble. Preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God. David, he's not ignoring the pain, not denying it. If you're here today and you're hurting, David's hurting. He's a realistic man in a real broken world. Preserve me, O God. And yet what David does from that moment forward, especially in the first three verses, is to speak to God himself. Notice four observations. Number one, what David's soul says to God. Preserve me, O God, and you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David, crying out, knows the pain, cries out, preserve me, O God. He's not relying upon himself. It's overwhelming to his well-being. He can't handle himself. He cries out to God. And then what he does is not only glorious, but instructive of us. David speaks from his soul to God's. He's not merely reading a prayer that somebody else has written, but from David's heart, David speaks about what he knows to be true of this God. Notice the language, verse one, you I take refuge, and and you, verse two, are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This is a personal relationship between David and his God. It's living, it's breathing. There have been good moments in that relationship. There have been awful moments in that relationship. But here's David saying, I take refuge in you, O God. You are the one with whom I have nothing good except you and you alone. My encouragement as you pause there for a second is to say, who is God for you? I'm not saying he's moldable and pliable and you can have your own God or your own truth, but are you appropriating biblical terminology into your personal life? Well, you would say, not just I know the God of the Bible, is the creator God or the redeemer God, but he's, he's my creator. He's my redeemer. He's the one I rest in. David has a personal relationship here that is beautiful and absolutely essential in a life in a broken world. David says, this is my God. Oh, that we would appropriate this God into our life. And then David essentially is doing what I would call taking inventory. Back in my grocery store days, we would have to do it twice a year. How much stock do I have? What's the worth of those items to report for government and so forth? But you had to take inventory. But I'd argue, David's, that's what exactly David's doing. David has some mess before him. We do not know the mess of Psalm 16. We don't know the age of David at Psalm 16. Maybe he's young and naive, but maybe these words certainly sound more like a seasoned man who's been through great hardship, is crying out to God, and then recites the inventory he has with God himself. Verse one, God, you are my refuge. In other words, here's the mess around me, what do I have? I got a refuge, I got a resting place. I got one spot I can go which is greater and safer than every other spot on the planet. God himself is my refuge. David's taking inventory. I had the safest refuge a man or a woman could possibly have. That's in my my pocket, so to speak. That's in my inventory. I might not have a thousand things, but I I have a refuge. In fact, I have the safest refuge you could ever have. It's God himself. 
Then he says in verse 2, you are my Lord. I say to the Lord, notice that's all caps, L-O-R-D, so we know that's the name Yahweh. You are my Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. It's the English writers signaling to you that he's saying, I said to Yahweh that you are Adonai. I said to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God, the Exodus, you are my Lord. You are my master. You are my ruler. You're the sovereign one over all of my life. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from this will, the will of this Lord. And so here the inventory is being taken. What's he say? I got a safe refuge and I have a sovereign Lord. I got a God through whom nothing comes in my life that doesn't first pass to his good, sovereign, and powerful hands. He's taking inventory. He's got the safest refuge. He's got a sovereign Lord. And then he says as well in verse two, I have no good apart from you. In other words, David says, this one that I understand, I'm assessing, I'm realizing in my own life as well as biblical history, he's the supreme treasure. There's nothing greater on the planet I can have than God himself. And so here David's taking inventory, what resources do we have available? You can, can imagine getting, getting uh, caught with some financial storm in your life and you, you pull out your checkbook. What, how much money's in the bank? What money do I have in stocks? What money's under the pillow? What, 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 are, what sources do I have? David says, this is all I've got, but, but here's what I've got. Safest refuge, sovereign Lord, supreme treasure. You realize in this Psalm, there's something different happening in David's life. It is not about David. It's not about David's personal resources. It's about the God who's involved in David's life. And so David says, I will speak my soul to this God. I'll remind my own heart of what I have when I only have God and you realize he's the only thing we ever need. You might lose your health, you might lose finances, you might lose a family member, but if you have God, you've got everything you need, a refuge and a Lord and a treasure. David, David's taking inventory. May we train our own hearts and minds to say, when I look at the world around me and see all that I do not have, be reminded all that I do have in the gospel. Be reminded when God speaks to us in that gospel about his son, Jesus Christ, there are glorious gifts he gives us to be forgiven, to be justified, to be adopted. These are all glorious gifts, but the greatest gift you get in the gospel is God himself. I have God, <laughs> I have a personal relationship with the God of all creation of heaven and earth, the sovereign Lord. He's my God. He's for me, not against me. What shall man do to me? What shall hardship do to me? I have God himself. David, David's taking inventory and realizes the blessings he has in God. In verse four to six, we see the folly of idolatry. It's the second observation in the blessing of the Lord. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings Shall I not pour out or take the name, their names on my lips? Notice, we'll talk, start with the negative. David's saying, he known hardship following God. He's known hardship not following God. But he says, how much greater are those that follow after false gods? 
It's a fool's errand. It's not worth it. They shall multiply these sorrows. It's the same language as Genesis chapter 3 where the pain shall be multiplied in childbearing. Here the pain multiplies. You, you run after a false god. You have one, the reality that never gives you the thing it asks you, that it offers you. And then two, the displeasure of your heavenly father who says, because I love you, I'll discipline you and draw you back. It's multiple pains. David says, don't pursue it. Oh, but to pursue God, who is, according to verse five, my chosen portion and my cup. You, are, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have beautiful inheritance. David says, I'm just taking inventory again. My life as I survey it, the lines have fallen in beautiful places. Now, that doesn't line up with the story on one hand. There are miserable places David was. But David learns even in those hard places, even under the hand of God's discipline, his God was for him and not against him. His God was working all things for the good of those who love him. Here, David could say, even all those spots, whether they're geographical boundaries, the lines like a lines on a, on a map, the boundaries, the good acreage of Palestine, or maybe metaphorical boundaries. It's interesting as you follow the Hebrew text here, verse 11 says, at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word pleasures is the same word as here in verse six, as pleasant places. So maybe they're geographical boundaries. Maybe it's my lines have fallen in pleasures. Where are pleasures? They're with God. <laughs> they're in God, they're God himself. So David's saying here, I think in verse six, He's saying, here's the blessings of God. He has fenced me in, and we're in the same pen. We're in the same yard. My life lived in this broken world, yes, but with God himself. And therefore, if I have God, I have everything that I need. Don't follow idolatry, follow the blessings of the Lord. David keeps going, verse seven to 11, <clears throat> four benefits that God gives to him. Number one, it's counsel. Verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Here, David says, this refuge and this Lord and this treasure, he's also my counselor. Now you might say, listen, those are three glorious things and then like an add-on, it's helpful. And yet you might be tempted to undervalue counsel, of course, until you need it. Until your marriage is falling apart or your kids are fighting each other kids are fighting you, or your job's miserable. You need counsel. God says, I will speak to you. I will speak to you by the power of my word. I'll speak to you with great clarity. Everything you need for life and godliness is written down in my word. I'll speak to you by my spirit. David says, oh, how precious is the counsel of my God speaking to me by his word. He gives counsel in verse seven. He gives security in verse eight. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Notice this is the same David as verse one. Verse one, preserve me, O God. He's asking, he's begging, he's calling out. It's almost raising a question. Will you preserve me, O God? But by verse eight, he says, I'll not be shaken. It's a negative way of saying, I will be preserved. 
In other words, the cry of verse 8 is now a confidence. The cry of verse 1 is a confidence now in verse 8. How? He remembered who his God was. He's seen his resources. He's pulled his eyes off of his trouble and his hardship and says, but now I see there's a God above me. There's a God who's with me. There's a God whose name is Yahweh and Adonai. And he's with me. I shall not be shaken. And understand clearly here, this is not David saying, I, as in my own strength, my own wisdom, my own power, I won't be moved. This is David who remembers who his God is. This is David who's focused not on his faith, but the object of his faith. And when he gets those eyes fixed upon the object of his faith, he says to us, I shall not be shaken. You can't leave here today and say David got smart or David got strong or David got powerful. David saw his God. David was transformed by the object of his faith and that made all the difference in the world. May we never look at our own arms, our own hands, but look at the object of those faith and say because of who God is, I can have I can have security and it can last. Thirdly, as joy, verse 9. The, Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. There's the word joy. My flesh also dwells secure. David, with all the trials, all the trauma, he brought a lot of it on himself, but not all of it. And yet David says, I found joy. It's a lady who lived in a certain Russian czar's home, confined to that the gospel made its way into this house. She places her faith in Jesus. She's joyful and verbal about her faith in Christ. Lazar didn't like it. He had competition now. He says, I'm going to throw you in jail for the next day. Puts her down the dungeon, the lowest level society. She's rubbing shoulders with them for about 24 hours. Brings her back up and says, okay, ma'am, are you ready to get rid of your silly faith now? This lady who had only known a saving faith in Jesus for 24 hours says, I have known more joy with Jesus in jail for 24 hours than a lifetime in the courts of the czar. That might sound like an overstatement, except for those of you who know the sweetness of the forgiveness of sins and the blessing of justification to be made right with God Almighty, to be called a son or a daughter of God, to be sealed by the Spirit of God, to be, be assured he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. We know joy in a way the world will never know it. David found joy. It wasn't his circumstances, it was his Savior. This woman found joy. It wasn't her circumstances, it was her Savior. And what I long for you to, you to have that the world would clamor for is a certain joy-filled confidence. I have Jesus Christ. I have a joy that the world doesn't understand because it's always circumstantial, but ours surpasses understanding. It's in this God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Fourthly and finally, His pres preservation, verse 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David here speaks words that are about himself and ultimately about the Lord Jesus. 
It's a bit of a double fulfillment in the Old Testament here. David, who was told in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would, that one of his descendants would be upon the throne forever and ever, the Davidic covenant. David knew that one of his grandsons, great-great-grandsons, would be upon the throne of God forever and ever. And therefore, David knew he would die. It says in that promise, when you go to your fathers, which is the language of the Old Testament for when you die, one of your sons will come behind you and be upon the throne. And so here it's fascinating as you read it in terms of David's, an understanding of David's life. He says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Who's he talking about? Maybe it's himself. David's saying, I know that on the day that I die, my body will be laid in the grave, but that won't be the final word. I know the power of my God to protect me all the days of my life and after I die, I trust you, O God. So then the Old Testament, the idea of an afterlife is not as well informed as the New Testament, yet David had it. I know God, they will lay me in the grave, but I trust you even then. You somehow will raise me up. Now it's fascinating about the passage Dr. Phillips read. Acts chapter two is, Peter explains to us Psalm 16. Acts 2 is quoting this passage which we just read. And Peter says, the one he's talking about, his name is Jesus. His body likewise will be laid in a grave, but he will not see corruption for on the third day, he not only will be raised, he was raised from the dead. So that every other Christian, everyone else who's tied up in Jesus Christ, all that are united to him will be raised with him. The ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 16 is Acts chapter two is in Jesus. So we conclude fourthly, all these blessings, they're in Jesus Christ himself. The ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 16, David's greater son who stands in our place, who lies in our grave, who overcomes even our greatest enemy, which is death itself. So you can understand this God, he truly is for us. He is my greatest refuge. He is my supreme treasure. He's my sovereign Lord. He gives me joy and security and preservation. I can have all of that. Cyprian found that. I'll close with this. Cyprian, 200 years after the birth of Christ, prominent lawyer in North Africa, a great speaker of his day, but born to non-Christian parents. And for much of his life, he himself wasn't a Christian. He would write these words to a friend, which I want to read to you in closing. He says, it's a bad world. It's an incredibly bad world. But I discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasures in our sinful life. They are despised and were persecuted, but they care not they're masters of their own souls. They've overcome the world. These people are Christians. And I, Cyprian says, am one of them. May God, in his kindness, draw your eyes off the troubles onto himself. And you would say, I have a refuge. I've got a Lord. I've got a treasure who's working in my life despite all of that. That we as well might become masters of our souls and say, nevertheless, because I have counsel and security and joy and preservation, my life will look profoundly different in a way the world would only long to have. 
Let's pray that God does that in our hearts. God of grace, work even now, we pray, as you took this young shepherd boy and made him into a man after your own heart, would you, oh God, do that in our hearts as well? Make us like David in that way. Make us like Cyprian. Make us like this woman who found Jesus Christ even in a Russian czar's home. Lord, would, you, would we find you, O oh Lord, and be found in you and know the ultimate hope and security we can find in you alone. Do that, we pray, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.